Let's get started. We'll start with a prayer. Just a second. Here we go. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee, for thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, and thine all-holy, good, and life-giving Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is in our midst. Thank God. So, our book supply is dwindling. Maybe some people have been borrowing copies. Oh, okay, you have one. Do you guys want to? Do you guys want? You know, maybe, maybe not. Would you guys just kind of like to pass those around? Um, I promise to try to print up extra copies. I'll try to remember. I'm one of those people who really, I'm just always in the present. I'm always thinking about where I'm at and what I'm doing, and I don't take tomorrow for granted. Um, and that means I'm not always great at planning <laughs> ahead. So, um, but uh, I will try to remember to print up extra copies because I have copies for, for all of these chapters, and everyone can have something to, to look at during our sessions. I'm going to ask these guys if they can kind of velvet hammer okay so we have quite a bit to cover today and I want to try to get through it today so I want to keep it focused you know I like to go wend my way through these things but because we have this special study on heaven and hell and uh, how to live the orthodox life in a secular age uh, it would be good to work through those so that we can bring this, you know, this uh, cycle of catechism to a close and then start over again at the beginning next week, God willing. So did anyone, did anyone grab that booklet or look at the article, Heaven and Hell, by um, the, the Divine Fire of God's Love by Father James? <clears throat> Do you guys look at that? Yeah, I sent it out. Are you on our mailing list? No. Margot, right? Margot? Yeah. Um, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one to read. So, um, if I can get your email address, or if you go to our website and just scroll down to the bottom of the front page, you can sign up for our mailing list. And then I can add you to the, we have a main mailing list that goes out a couple emails a week or more sometimes with little updates and things, but, uh, I also have a separate one for this class, just a reminder that we're having class, or if anything changes, 
with links to the things that we're going to cover. And sometimes I do a follow-up with extra articles and things like that. So. And this class is on that site? So, so if you sign up for the mailing list, then I will add you to that subgroup. So that, um, so that you'll get unique emails, just class reminders and things like that. So I can just be on the lookout for, for that. So either you can do that on the website or just give me your email address and I can sign you up. So, but this is a, a we're going to just touch on it briefly today. We're not going to go into depth like that, the article written by Father James. Uh, but enough to give, to give you the gist of what, what the church believes and probably many of you probably already know. Um, in essence, what the church believes about heaven and hell. So let's begin. The divine scriptures state explicitly that we will be judged by Christ and not by God the Father. And you hear in John 5. Excuse me. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. We will all be judged by the one who took upon himself our humanity. And lived a perfect human life. Christ's life is the standard against which our lives will be measured. And for that reason, we call, what, what do we, no, I won't, that's too broad of a question. I'll just tell, tell you. For that reason, we refer to Christ as the new Adam or the second Adam. Have you heard that? You know, the true man, the, you know, the, the real, the true person. Because he renewed our Humanity, he revealed to us what it means to be a true human being. Not a superhuman, but an actual human. So our Lord said that when he returns, he will separate mankind into two groups as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Of course, this is a, a, a metaphor. The sheep will inherit the kingdom of God, while the goats will inherit the everlasting fire prepared for the devil. And what's most interesting about this parable is the criteria for the judgment. And we need to read this from Matthew 5, 25, and I have an a easier translation here. As soon as I can bring it up. Let me see what I can do. A little finicky iPad here. So this is what we hear from Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And I want you to know, like, when he says... Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. That kingdom was, was prepared for everyone. Not just for certain ones. But it will be inherited by the ones who choose to inherit it. I mean, who, who are willing to, you know, who, who live not, not by their own criteria, you know, but by God's criteria. And he's going to give us the criteria here. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did, you see, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did to the least of these, my brethren, the poorest, the least in society, the least, you did it to me. 
Were you guys here when I gave that, uh, that kid's homily and I told the story about the woman who met Jesus in the courtyard and he, he said, I'll come visit you tomorrow. That's, that's a play on this very teaching. And so um, not only is each and every human being created in the image of God, but because of the incarnation, every human being is a blood brother of Christ himself because he had human blood coursing through his veins. How we relate to others determines how we relate to God. St. John, the evangelist, said in his epistle, how can you love God whom you cannot see if you cannot love your brother whom you do see? You know? Don't dupe yourself into thinking, well, I love God, you know, um, while you're trashing other people around you. No. If you're doing that, then God has become a concept for you. And God is the one who Saves you because you think you want to be saved. But you don't know what salvation is. If you are not willing to love the person in front of you. You're tricking yourself into thinking that salvation is something that I get. That God is going to give me. You presume. And that's why, I mean, we have to really strive to challenge ourselves. To love other people. And I'm not saying you're going you're gonna to solve the problem of world hunger, you know. And then God will go. You'll slow clap as Judy walks into the kingdom of God. You know what I mean? That's not the point. The point is, are you willing to love the person in front of you? Even if you can't fix them or solve their problem? Are you willing to acknowledge them as a, as a person created in the image of God? Are you? What it means is that you tr- your existence then is not a merely autonomous one. Like St. Siloan said famously, my brother is my life. And St. Anthony the Great says, our salvation lies with our neighbor. You know? So there is no such thing as individual salvation. Salvation is always under communion with others. And the paradigm for the Christian is, like, I, I forgot the exact line for the, from the end of the book, For the Life of the World, by Father Alexander Schmemann. But he basically says that a Christian is someone who every, everywhere he looks and in, every, in everyone he encounters sees the image of God. And then not just conceptually, but honors that image in the other person. You know? And it's a beautiful way to live, but it demands something of you. Demands for your ego to shrink. Demands for your desire for attention to wither, to atrophy. Your desire for affirmation. The most beautiful form of love is the one that's accomplished without anyone seeing. Without anyone knowing what. Who did that? Let them think that God did it. Because it always is God who does it. Because God is love. And if we do anything that has any semblance of love, then it's a little tiny crumb from the loaf of the life that is God's God's, uh, substance, you could say. 
So this insight um, into the nature of the last judgment also provides with us uh, provides us with an insight into the nature of heaven and hell. We must not be misled into thinking of heaven and hell in pure, purely materialistic terms, simply as places of reward or punishment. Like I said today in the homily, you can't, it's not something you can earn. We must also consider the spiritual reality of heaven and hell. And I don't know if Father James put it in his booklet, um, but he used to always say, you know, heaven isn't just a place where you can eat as much as you want and never get fat. You know, we have this idea that we're, oh, well, our desires will be satisfied. No, they won't, unless your desire is for God. Then it'll be an insatiable satisfaction, a constant longing, you know, for entry into communion with the, the living God. When Christ returns, heaven and earth will pass away and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. We cannot, cannot say exactly what this new creation will be like. For I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath entered the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And honestly, when you love God and when you come to trust God, then you don't, you could care less about speculation. What's going to happen? doesn't matter. God's will be done, not mine. God's will be done. And you find joy in seeking to do God's will no matter what's happening right now. And now is the only time, now is the only time that you can do God's will. Now. The, the new creation will be material in some sense and because it will be, it will be created. But again, we can't speculate about, we just, we just know that God will bring things into completion. But not in the sense that we understand um, matter in this life. The most we can say is that it will be like our Lord's resurrected body, his glorified body. It could be touched and handled, yet it was not bound by space or the laws of nature as we know them. It's therefore a heresy to say that the kingdom to come is purely immaterial. Because Christ took on the flesh. So he can't not be what he, what he is. If that were the case, there would be no point in the universal resurrection. It's equally dangerous, however, to overemphasize the material nature of the kingdom. Then we become like, forgive me, but we become like Muslims who think that we're going to get to go to heaven and have all the sex we want and eat whatever food we want. Yes, you know. No, you can... You can pursue that, then you will have your reward now. But it will not satisfy you. It won't. We've talked about that. Because what you want is God. Not physical gratification or satisfaction. Ultimately. What point would there be in living in a glorious palace if one's soul were unfit to enjoy its treasures? And so, I hope you got from the message today, from today's homily, that it wasn't, the, the point wasn't that uh, Gundafor had this really cool house in heaven that he gets to live in, but it was the place prepared for him, you know. Not this amazing, you know, physical edifice with a fridge full of food, but a beautiful place prepared for him by Christ to dwell in eternity beyond anything that he could imagine being created on earth. On the other hand, what, what flames could possibly torture one whose heart is full of love? 
None. Because you will endure all things for Christ's sake. When Christ returns in glory, and I'm going to bump over to a different translation of 1 Corinthians 15, 28. He's, now when, um, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. God who is everything will be revealed as everything, as life itself. God's immediate presence will be to those who love him, the very bliss of heaven, and to those who hate him or who resist or turn against, reject him, the very fire of hell. The fire of hell, said one of the desert fathers, is the love of God. We've said that man is created in the image of the Holy Trinity to live his life in an eternal communion of love with God, his fellow man, and the whole created order. Interestingly, um, I was reading a book on, uh, called Life After Death. I was looking at it last night because of the, or yes, yesterday, because of the, the gospel reading for this weekend. And uh, there's a book called Life After Death by, by Metropolitan Erotheus Vlachos. I'll write it up on here on the board. It's a pretty good book. <clears throat> Um, Stan just read it. Pretty easy to remember. <laughs> Life after death. We should have it in the bookstore. Um, and the, the last name of the author is Vlachos. And uh, he said, <clears throat> Heaven and hell exist for man, but not for God. It's an interesting contemplation. So those who, through union with Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, quoting St. Paul, and they will enter into the joy of their Lord. They will experience his presence as a love and peace and eternal joy, for they shall be like him. On the other hand, those who prefer their self-contained individuality exulting in their slavery to the passions. Like I heard one, one uh, Orthodox teacher say, hell is getting what you, what you want for all of eternity and not being able to do anything about it. So exulting in their slavery to the passions, they will rise from the grave only to be confronted by the one who is the eternal antithesis of their spiritual disposition. Those for whom hell is other people, to quote John Paul Sartre, they will stand before the eternal other and his love will condemn their hatred. And it's not because God condemns, it's because God reveals what is there. So the condemnation that we experience is our own. It's self-inflicted. When I was out in Walla Walla, I... um, I was invited to give the homily. <laughs> the priest, Father Daniel, and I were driving to church together that morning. And he goes, thank you for being... He, off, he asked me to give the homily. So, okay, I'll do that. And he goes, you know, our services are kind of long. And uh, we have the wedding this afternoon. So, so if you could keep it on the shorter side, that'd be, you know, that'd be good. And I was like, ooh. Um, okay I have something prepared I'll try not to make it too long anyway 
I don't know. I didn't, I didn't record that one. I didn't um, time it. But afterward, he said, that was the perfect length. So that was very kind of him to say that. So anyway. But, uh, but anyway, during that, oh, during that homily, I was going to tell you something I said, and then I told you a story about myself instead of... Uh, the ego has its ways, doesn't it? Okay, where were we? Hell is other people. Stand before the end. His love will condemn their hatred. There was, there was a little line that came up when I was giving that homily that I... Self, that it's self-inflicted. I don't know. Why don't you finish the sentence for me? What was I going to say? I don't know. If it comes back, I'll let you know. Sometimes these things pop back into my head. But I was, I was talking about this very thing. Um, you know, quoting, like, quoting St. Isaac the Syrian, who said so beautifully, if you've, seen your, if you've truly seen your neighbor, you've seen God. You know? So, um, but his love will condemn their hatred, and he will, his, his love reveals, not because God is a, is a judge with a gavel waiting to, to, to weigh everything in the balance. You know what I mean? To say like, um, did you do enough good works and, and not too many bad works? Uh, which is more of the Western view. It's, it's more like, do, are you willing to, are you willing to accept an entry into communion with other people? Or do you want to try to preserve yourself? And if you're going to try to preserve yourself from all of eternity, then your life will be hellacious. I heard a story. I don't know where it originated. I think it's from one of the sayings of the Desert Fathers. But say, I'll just kind of give you a little summary of it. A monk was walking through the desert, and he sees a skull on the side of the road. And the skull goes something like, pray for me. And the, the, he kind of catches, what? Did you just talk to me? And he says, yeah, I did. And I'm someone who departed in sin and I am in hell. Well, what's it like down there? And he said, well, we're tied back to back and we don't get to see one another. But pray for us. He said, when you pray for us, we have enough strength to turn around and get a glimpse of one another for a moment. And the lesson there is that we were created to, to be persons together with one another. Do you remember, some of you might have heard this, do you remember that teaching from Elder Emilianos who was talking to one of his spiritual sons and he said, why, do we, why did God put our eyes here? Do you know the answer? Why did God, God put our eyes here? To look forward, to see the other. You have to look in a mirror to see yourself. To see the needs of the other and to love the other and to be loved by them in return. That's what true personhood is. And in some way, then, the kingdom of God is seeing all of the others and not even worrying about seeing yourself. Because... In contradistinction to saying hell is other people, it's my brother is my life. You know, I cannot wait to spend eternity with you. 
or as as uh, Saint Aphilokius Apopmos says. So, you know, I'll probably quote this two million times over the course of my ministry. My children, I do not want paradise without you. He said to his spiritual children. And I think that should be our desire for everyone we encounter. That doesn't mean we lie to them and just to make people feel good about themselves. No. We do, we do have to align ourselves with the truth and with what love really is. But while aligning yourself with Christ, it's not so that out of our insecurities, so that you have the right to condemn others or judge them as unworthy of heaven or something like that. No one is worthy. But his love then, it is, it's like a caustic fire to people who reject it. A priest once gave a, a homily here. We had a couple priests many years, like over a decade ago. Do you remember Father Michael Malloy? Mm-hmm. And was, I, don't, you don't, I don't remember very many homilies I've heard, but I remember this one. He said, our life is kind of like like someone who's been in solitary confinement, confinement in like a super dark cell. No light. And you're... Your pupils have dilated because, you know, you're, get, you're adjusted to the darkness. And then when they swing the doors open and the light comes in, it's like, ah! you know, you're exposed to the light. It's too bright for you. And he used that as an image of what our encounter with the, the uncreated light of God will be like. You know, shut the door and keep me in my cell. No. How about step out into the light? Your eyes will adjust. It's okay, but you have to change. Are you willing to? This is not going to destroy you. So his selflessness, God's selflessness, will condemn their self-centeredness. The two are incompatible. His gift of eternal life will be their curse of eternal death. And there are there are. Two, two deaths we can speak of, speak of, the death of the body and the death of the soul. And the death of the body is the separation of the soul from the body, and the death of the soul is the separation of the person from God. And I pray that none of us experience that one. But they'll take their place with their spiritual kindred, Satan and his angels, and let us therefore pray and work that we will be numbered with the sheep and not the goats, and not only ourselves but others as well. And this is one of my favorite things about St. Silouan, a recent contemporary saint. I like to refer to him quite a bit. Is he behind you, Maria? Where is he? Okay. Oh, he's up. He's up above. He's up Saint, above St. John of Rilla. He, um, his heart was so huge. There was so much room in there, you know, for, for the world that... He could barely tolerate the idea that anyone would willfully separate themselves from God. And he, he would, t- we, he, this big guy, he was huge. We have black and white pictures of him. He lived in the 19th century, 1920th century. And uh, big, burly guy with a huge beard. And, you know, he was known as being tough and rough and tumble when he was younger, a young man. And ended up becoming a, a meek and humble, but kind of a giant of a monk. And uh, 
he would, he would weep in, as he was interceding for the world. He didn't want to believe that anyone would ever willfully separate themselves from the love of God. He would cry like, like, like Christ shedding tears of blood. He didn't shed tears of blood, but with such pain of heart. And he would say, Oh Lord, that all would know thee by thy Holy Spirit. Which means that all would know thee with the, the utmost of intimacy. You know, that all would enter into communion with God. And the idea that people could, and he knew people were capable of rejecting that love, it would result in him praying with tears. And I honestly think if we, if we mature spiritually, most of us, we're just kind of, we're barely getting to know ourselves, let alone coming to terms with how lost and corrupt and hurt the world is can barely, barely deal with ourselves. But if we mature spiritually, then you'll be tempted at some point by way of self-righteousness. I found the truth. I found the, the real truth. No. I haven't found, I don't have anything that's my own. Salvation isn't even my own. It's been given to me by God who loves me and who loves you just as much as he loves me. Me, if, if he can love me and redeem me, then he has to love you and desire your salvation in the same way. And it leads to not emotional tears of self-pity or helplessness, but tears of sorrow for a, for a world that is longing for what only God can give them. For the love that's only found in the unification that comes through Christ, by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And we would say, despite us, all the sick invalids in the hospital that we call the church, we would say that it's, the experience of that is, is found in the church, boldly. And I'm sad to say that I'm not the, the best example of that redeeming love of God. Otherwise, I would be weeping right now while I'm talking to you. Although if I did, maybe I would be like drawing attention to myself. And so maybe I have the ability to hold back my tears. I don't know. But there are those, you, it, it's an interesting thing. Something that's very far removed from, from us. Because usually tears are tears of helplessness, self-pity, sorrow, pain, or something like that. Um, but not an intense pain out of longing for other people to experience the love of God. Can you imagine having that kind of prayer in silence before God, longing for the salvation, your own salvation, therefore the salvation of others? Because if we long for our own salvation, we have to, by extension, long for the salvation of others. And weeping, or at least sighing, even a deep sigh. I read a quote recently. A deep, a deep sigh of repentance is equivalent to two buckets of tears shed for people like you and I. So, a little tiny glimpse of that teaching on heaven and hell. There's another article, I forgot to send it to you. I'll try to, um, I'll try to remember to send it to you this week. There's another one called uh, The River of Fire. 
excuse me, and then there's an interesting icon of the last judgment. Maybe I'll send you a link to a description of this, that, big, that bigger icon on the wall. It shows the separation of, of people who have chosen one side or the other to receive God's love or to reject it. Don't take it down. But it, but it is that one. And what I can do is I can send you, there's a really good website. It's, there's, a, there's a whole new form of literacy that you can develop in orthodoxy. And it's um, being able to read icons. The way, the way that they're painted. Um, the way that the, the, the colors are used in different symbols. And there's a really good website called Icon Reader. It's like iconreader.wordpress.com. It's an excellent tool. If you go to my website, um, watchfullove.com, you can subscribe to my website. You can be the, my tenth subscriber. But if you go to watchfullove.com, I use mostly use my website as like a personal resource, like a receptacle for things I want to keep track of, and nice, like almost like a like a a drive or something, you know, like a cloud almost, where I post little stories from the lives of saints and links that I think are helpful. And then I usually post the audio from my homily just in case anyone stumbles on it. But, um, but if you go to the, there's a, there's a little section with links on the right hand. It's just a blog. So on the right hand side, there are links. And you can find the link to that icon, icon reader um, website. And you can look up all kinds of icons, all the, the 12 feasts, different icons of the Theotokos, the Last Judgment. It's a great resource. I don't think he updates it anymore, but uh, it's pretty thorough. So let's continue on to our conclusion. Living an Orthodox life in a secular world. To be faithful Orthodox Christians, we must live according to the light that God has given us and share that light with the world. Let your light, what did the Lord say? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and pat you on the back and say, what a great Christian you are. No, and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the idea. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. It's more blessed to, to love than to receive accolades in response to the good works that you do. Glorify your Father in heaven. See God, not me. That's one of the things I like to say about the saints. Like, all of the saints, they're not, the point of the holy life is not to draw attention to oneself, but to point the way to God. Here, let me show you. Here he is. Come this way. Being an Orthodox Christian is the greatest privilege in the world. I feel that way. I've been here at this church for about 17 years. I've been Orthodox for about 16, 15 or 16 years. Been a 
priest for five years. Done a lot of services. I'm still new, I'm still young, but uh, but I haven't gotten tired of it. You know, I heard I heard someone say once in kind of a cheeky way, and I try not to be too cheeky, but. Uh, they said, if you don't like the worship in the church, you're probably not going to like what it's like in heaven. Ceaselessly praising and glorifying God with the angels and surrounding the throne of God, singing, holy, 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 Lord of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory, Hosanna in the highest. You know, he's constantly proclaiming the goodness and worshiping God endlessly. You don't have, you don't have to worry about when coffee hour is going to begin that is the feast. But it is the greatest privilege. We've been entrusted with the most beautiful treasure. The truth about God, about the world, about ourselves. I was, I was at, uh, I think it was our 25 year. I don't know if it's 20 or 25. When did we have that event in Edmonds? Is it the 20 year anniversary for St. Paul? It's 20. Yeah? Where Father Mel came down, Father Mel cried. Do you remember that? And he's not like this really, I mean, he's, an, he's a warm person, but he doesn't strike me as a crier. But he was one of the, the guys who came out of the evangelical, the so-called evangelical Orthodox Church, which was its own denomination, kind of trying to do like pseudo-Orthodoxy in their own home churches and things and who became Orthodox. And he, he was reflecting on, he was the founder, wasn't he the first, the founder of St. Paul? Um, he's now retired and lives up in uh, Everson, east of Bellingham. But he said something really simple, like, teared up and he said, it's, it's a miracle that we found the church. We found the church. We were always looking for it. We found it. I can't believe it. It was really touching. He said, what you're experiencing right now is how I feel too. Every day. So we have the writings of the Holy Fathers and the counsels of grace-filled monks and nuns to guide us. That's better than a candy shop. Better than an ice cream parlor. Candy shops are nice and ice cream parlors are okay. But, uh, but the treasure trove of the writings of the saints and those who have come before us who just love God. It's like, it's like honey comes off of their lips. We have the opportunity to stand before God, our Creator, and worship Him in spirit and truth without being destroyed by the love and the light of God, but by being sanctified by it. Receiving from him the very life of the Holy Trinity. We hear from Psalm 148. Let them praise the, the name of the Lord, for his name alone is excellent. His glory is above the earth and the heaven and heaven. He also exalteth the horn of his people, the praise of all his saints, even of the children of Israel, the people near to him. Praise ye the Lord. With great privilege, however, comes great responsibility. Unto whom soever much is given of him shall much be required. And each of us will stand before the throne of God and give an account of our life. 
we will be judged according to the light that we have been given. We cannot say what will happen to those who have never heard the name of Christ or who have heard the gospel preached only with a partial or a heretical form. We were just talking about that during coffee hour, you know. Like, you know, one of the people was saying, I won't say who just because it's their recording, but one of the people saying, you know, they were talking about their faith with a family member who said, oh, I don't want to hear, you know, anyone saying that Protestants are going to go to hell or something like that. It's like, I quoted St. Theophon the Recluse who said, what are you doing worrying about the salvation, about whether or not God will receive others into his kingdom? That's for him to do. Focus on yourself. But you will be condemned if you betray what you have, if you give up what you have. In the words of the day, that is a, that's the correct way of you do you. I don't like that relativistic, you do whatever, your truth or whatever, but... No, but in this case it is. Focus on your own repentance. And whether or not you're loving those around you. We do know, however, that (coughs) we who have received the gospel in all of its fullness will be held accountable for it. Be careful what you ask for. The Holy Apostles command us to hold fast to the faith that we've received and to live according to it. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or epistle. What great perdition awaits those who change the faith. Galatians 1.8 says, But though we or an angel from heaven, if we preach any other gospel unto you, rather than that which we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. Excuse me. Hear also the words of our Savior from Mark 9. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it's better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were cast into the sea. We are to guard the faith which has been entrusted to us, changing, changing nothing. And that's kind of the chaos that's going on these days is that everyone's trying to reinvent Christianity without having discovered it (laughs) to begin with. I mean, there's something, there's a little kernel of the truth. Like this man named Jesus, we get an idea about, there's something significant about him. But without the foundation of the church and the the living tradition, which is the very breath of the Holy Spirit throughout the ages, without that, we're kind of, we're kind of sucking air, you know, and making it up as we go. And another thing that you've probably heard me say before is that there comes a point where we realize it's not, it's not Christianity that needs to change. It's not the church that needs to change. It's not the world that needs to change. It's me who needs to change. I need to change, and that's why I need the church. The church doesn't need me. I need it. And it's not even an it. You know, I need the living vine. I need the, the life in Christ. It's not enough, however, merely to preserve the faith. To say, you know, oh, we have the creed. You know, we have this, we have that. We have the best books or something like that. Okay. The scribes were pretty self-righteous and we could be just like them. 
Those who confess the Orthodox faith yet fail to live Orthodox lives will face the greatest condemnation of all. What excuse will we offer to our Lord, our judge, when we stand before him? We cannot claim that we did not know the truth. We cannot claim that we were not taught the ways of righteousness. The very gift of orthodoxy will serve to condemn us on that day if we fail to live according to the gospel. We hear a long quote from Matthew 7. I don't have a different translation. Maybe I thought this one was okay. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, because their, their words can be vain. Their words can be empty. I met a guy once. I was a, I was a Bible student back when I was um, in college. I was in Bible and theology in a Protestant school, you know, long before orthodoxy. And I saw this guy with a little, sorry, I didn't even want to say it. Calvin, from Calvin and Hobbes, kneeling before a cross. You know what I mean? Like on the side of his red motorcycle. And, uh, and he, he goes, like, I saw him out there and I said, hey, how are you? And it's like, you've got Calvin kneeling at the cross, huh? And he goes, yeah, you know, I believe in God and do do but I mean, I live a sinful life. Like, well, what do you, hmm, what do you mean? I mean, like, I'm sleeping with another man's wife and, you know, just doing whatever I want to do. But, I mean, I figure if someone sees, like, the cross on my motorcycle, it might, like, lift them up or inspire them. I was like, huh. I didn't really know what to do with that, at that time, you know, at the time. <laughs> but... But there was, I sensed a disconnect there. Not all that say, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. You can say the words, but if, if you don't want to change, then God will honor that. He'll respect that. But there's no play acting in heaven. Like what we do in the church, making the sign of the cross. It's not, what do they call it? Um, LARPing. You ever heard of LARPing? Live action role playing. Where people like dress up like, what do they dress up like? Medieval characters or something. And they go out and, you know, they do a, a duel or something like that. Or No. Renaissance, I don't know. Just they dress up like people from different areas in the, or eras. Oh man! So they try to bring like video games to life, and they'll meet at a park and have a, you know, a battle or something like that, with chainmail on. And but this is not LARPing. This is not live action role playing in the church. If you treat it like that. And you want it to be like that. If you just want it to be like a, a costume that you put on. You, you can, you can, but you, you'll know the difference. You'll know because you'll feel inauthentic about it. And you'll know that you're, you're lying to yourself, to others, and to God ultimately. And you don't have to. That's the thing. You have to fake it. You don't have to fake it. God can save the sinner that you are, but not the saint that you pretend to be. That was Metropolitan Anthony Bloom, I think, who said that. So, 
You can say, Lord, Lord, and you could say it in five different languages. So what? Unless you really want to encounter him. But he that doeth the will of my Father, Christ continues, who is in heaven, those are the ones who will enter into the kingdom. Many will say to men in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Yeah, there are a lot of people doing that on the TV these days or the internet. And in thy name have we not cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? What's that movie that Steve Martin, maybe you shouldn't watch it. Steve Martin's a little naughty. I don't really watch movies, but he, he played a, like a healer, like a faith healer. Do you remember that one? I watched it a while back. Like, I don't know, probably five years ago. And I was like, I'm interested in religious movements. And I thought, what are they going to do here? And it's about, he's like a total slime bag, schmoozer, fraud. And he meets some real people in this little town. He's just going to squeeze them for what they're worth, you know. Get the money out of them and and abandon them. He just kind of gives them like false hopes. Enough to believe that something's really happening. It's a whole f- fraud, you know, that he, it's like a carnival that he puts on. Until he meets some real people who have real struggles and he starts feeling for them. And uh, like they had this, I think Christ, Christ on a cross with his eyes closed and then everyone leaves and in the middle of the night he gets up on a ladder and he paints open eyes. Like, he opened his eyes overnight. You know, what a miracle. You know, stuff like that. So... <laughs> It was an interesting movie. I don't remember. I don't remember if it was bad, but it was. It was a. But it was an interesting. They were proving a point. I mean, that there are frauds out there, but but also, you can you can only fake it for so long. Was kind of the point, and it led him to a crisis. So. Continuing on. So, yeah, have we not done all these things? Didn't, did, did I not paint the eyes of Christ overnight to make people think that you were doing a miracle? And in thy name did we not do many wonderful works? And then he says, I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Therefore, because you created a version of me, you know, in your own image, or a false version to get what you wanted out of the deal. Therefore, whosoever heareth the sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And it is, it's a great fall for someone who was created with the dignity and the freedom to become like God, and who chooses not to fulfill that, you could say, destiny, so to speak. 
the secular world. Okay, we're doing okay time-wise. Living an orthodox life is easier said than done, however. Easier said than done, that's true. We do not live in the Christian Roman Empire, you know, in Byzantium, or, you know, under, in the pre, or in pre-revolutionary Russia, where social life was built around the church. Our situation is much more akin to that of Christians before the conversion of Constantine, when Christianity was an illicit or often persecuted religion. One of the greatest sins, you know, these days is to be, to be an outspoken Christian. Societal sins. You're a, oh, I didn't think you were that close-minded. You know, you're like, oh, I'm sorry. I've heard people apologize to other people when they say, oh, I'm a Christian. Although our society still exhibits vestiges of a Christian culture, so to speak, this is deceiving. The idea of a Christian America is a myth, similar to the romantic portrayals of the Old South in the movies, the presence of beautiful antebellum pre-war mansions, does nothing to erase the fact that it was a society built on slavery. The founding fathers of the United States were for the most part deists and masons, not Christians. They were not. They were not faithful. You know, they believed in God, but also they were Gnostics and, you know, occultists. So in addition to writing the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson also compiled his own, quote, Bible, have you heard about the, the Jefferson Bible? Yeah? You want to say something? Well, I'm not going to say anything. I know what it is. Yeah, you. But he basically expurgated, removed, or redacted the Gospels, and all the miracle stories were omitted. Such stories had no place in Jefferson's rationalistic worldview. This was the architect of American democracy. He was the one who heavily inspired the revolution to even become the way that it did to mm-hmm. go uh, to in the foundation of the republic in America. Yeah, and it was it was it was very like rationalistic, self will, man centered, and they were trying to do something good. Like I'm, I, I always I, I'm thankful for the country that we have and that we live in. Don't get me wrong. But it reminds me of um, reminds me of uh, when I was doing I did a retreat a few weeks ago or so at St. Thomas Church on pain and suffering and as I was doing some research I came upon a quote by Napoleon. Did I share this with you guys? Napoleon he looked up to the sky and he said, Heaven is yours and earth is mine. <laughs> he was sorely humbled later. The intellectual foundations of American society was the Enlightenment and its exaltation of human reason above faith. So, you know, the classic... Um, The quote by Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. You know, I'm self-aware, you know, therefore I exist. As if to say, I exist because I agree that I do. 
know, I've, I saw a, I've seen a tattoo. It says, self-made. You know? Ooh. Okay. What do your parents have to say about that? <laughs> Not exactly. Let me tell you how things work. Uh, she looked at me one evening. Okay. Anyway. So, to be sure, Americans have generally been uh, very conservative socially, and public morality um, has, until recently, borne the distinctive marks of Protestant Christianity. And that's kind of that's that's a stereotype of our of our society. And I think you know it's been pretty accurate until re- recently. Uh, it was inevitable, however, that this edifice of Christian morals would be washed away by the tide of rationalism, because it's you know because God. The reality of God, an eternal and uncreated God and an objective truth that is greater than you, um, challenges the limits of your own rationality. And we want, we're trying to be, we are trying to take the place of God. So it's like a sandcastle doomed by its proximity to the sea. Modern society is at best indifferent and often hostile to Christianity. Um, I think most Christians, they, they kind of feel a little embarrassed um, publicly about being Christians. And uh, because it is, it's taboo these days. Unless you're like a super woke Christian who, who doesn't really believe in anything anyway. And you just use Christianity as a way of expressing yourself or something like that. I mean, I went to a church. I felt really betrayed I was going to the Episcopal Church, <clears throat> a very, a very uh, conservative, liturgical Episcopal Church in California. This is kind of how I got in. It's a long story how I got there, but uh, Eucharistic, conservative, and traditional, beautiful services and things. It was nice. It's a little stone church. It was cool. Um, my wife and I were like the youngest people there by like forty years, though. <laughs> You know, and uh, yeah, I remember sitting with someone. It's great that you're here. Do you have any friends who want to come? We need more young people. But uh, when we moved up here, we found an Episcopal church and we went a few times and it was, you know, they had lovely services and things. But but then the priest said in one homily. Something really blatant, like, it doesn't matter what you believe. You can believe anything you want. Just use these words as a way of expressing it. And that's fine. I'm like, have you read the Bible? Like, I, you know, I don't, I don't agree with that. So we felt abandoned, you know, because we had found a kind of stability in, in liturgical worship and in Eucharistic worship. Like, they had communion every... Like that, remember that Protestant pastor friend of mine said, did I tell you guys this? He said, no matter how good the sermon is, if you have communion every week, at least they get the gospel every week. And uh, so, I, you know, we were, fi- we were finding a stability there and we felt totally, like, uh, derailed. It took us a long time to find orthodoxy after that. So, I mean, a few, a few more years or so. But... Uh, Anyway, um, 
Is the dogma of our society that man is nothing more than an evolved animal? The Bible is an ancient book, no different than any other ancient books, full of superstitions. And like I, I, I was still, I was even pretty rationalistic even when I became Orthodox. I, I accepted the miracles in the Bible, but when I started reading the lives of the saints, I'd be like, oh, I don't, did that really happen? Hmm. Like that story about St. Thomas and the guy, I'm like, if I believe it happened in the scripture, why don't I believe it continues? It has continued to happen to the lives of the Christians through, after the apostolic age, you know? Yeah. But something in me, in my own self-will, in my own weak faith, that something had to break there. And there's nothing to apologize about. Traditional Christianity is nothing more than a male-dominated power structure that denies equal rights to women and minorities, so supposedly. Christian morals fare no better. Greed and gluttony are a way of life. Perversions are considered normal. And worst of all, millions of unborn children are murdered each year in the name of convenience and, quote, women's rights. I gave a pretty, like, robust homily on abortion, I don't know, a couple months ago, if you, um, if you want to check it out. It was, I called it abortion an orthodox perspective. Um, surely a truly orthodox life in the modern world is very difficult, but we must not despair. I like to say, take the Lord at his word. Lo, I am with you always, and even unto the end of the world. Matthew 28, 20. And again, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Matthew 19. So strategies for godly living, we'll talk about. So how do you do it? That's kind of like a a sober, you know, setup. (laughs) But the point is to say, despite how difficult things seem to be, um... Christ has overcome the world. He's overcome death. And therefore, we can live a meaningful life. So although living a Christian life in this world is difficult, it's not impossible. Here's some strategies for godly living. The most important element in remaining faithful to the gospel of Christ is the commitment to do so. Someone was speaking with St. Seraphim of Sarab. There's a beautiful interaction that he had with one of his spiritual children, Nicholas Motovilov. And his, uh, his disciple was asking him, I think I have it posted on our website, on the St. Paul and the Media Resource Library page, if you want to check it out, this conversation of Nicholas Motovilov with um, St. Seraphim of Sarov. It's beautiful, worth reading. And he was asked the question, like, in the past there were so many um, holy people I'm summarizing, you know, um, rephrasing it. But there's so many holy people. What's different today? And St. Seraphim said, there's one thing we lack. Do you know what it is? you know what it is, Daniel? Anyone? Like two or three years ago, I was quoting it like all the time. Do you remember, Peter? No? There's one thing we lack. Nice try. No, it's a good guess. A firm resolve. 
a firm resolve. So a commitment to do it, to follow through. You know, not just to be, as, it, as people are saying these days, not just being ideological. Well, I believe this. I believe it. But I don't have to live that way. No, to actualize it. A firm resolve to live a life in accordance with what you believe. And it can be done. But it means, as, again, another favorite quote of mine, it means mercilessly persecuting hypocrisy within yourself. You've got to do it. And it's not nice because it feels bad. It feels bad to be diagnosed with an illness. You wish you hadn't been, but now that you know that you have it, you can get to work on it. And that's what we need to do with our hypocrisy. And we can. We can make a little progress. We must firmly resolve to take up our cross and to follow our Lord. Be assured, the devil will test our resolve. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. This is St. Paul in his epistle to the Galatians. The strength of our commitment, however, will only be as strong as the strength of our faith. And where does faith begin? Faith begins when you come to the realization of your own limitation. And your need not for self-reliance or being self-made. But made by God. Modern Christianity is spiritually anemic because the faith of modern man has been eroded by rationalism. If we are to remain steadfast in our commitment to Christ, we must be strong in our faith. Orthodoxy is truly a great banquet, but it's not a buffet. One of my friends calls it cafeteria Christianity. Yeah. You're going to pick and choose. You get, yeah, you, we talked about that when we met a couple times ago. We cannot pick and choose those elements of the faith, faith we will believe and those we will ignore. We're not free to underline our favorite Bible verses while we disregard those verses that make us uncomfortable. You know, as that guy once said, orthodoxy is all the verses in the Bible we chose not to underline as Protestants. On the contrary, we are to become as little children and accept the faith which has been transmitted to us joyfully and without reserve. Why? There's no reason to hold back. Matthew 18, verses 2 through 4, says, And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who was that little child, Carl? Carl, did he... Ignatius. Yeah, St. Ignatius. St. Ignatius. The next important strategy, so... Um, oh, I skipped ahead. Sorry. Ba, 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 ba. Once we've resolved with all of our heart and our strength to live 
life according to the gospel, the next important step is to establish and keep a daily rule of prayer. Prayer is our primary source of spiritual strength and our first line of defense against the attacks of the devil. Without prayer, living a Christian life is hopeless. With prayer, we are assured of the help of God. St. Paul, in his epistle to the Philippians, he says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Another translation says, Be anxious about nothing, but everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Prayer. Resolve. Prayer. The next important strategy in living the Christian life is to have a relationship with a spiritual father. Accountability is essential to spiritual growth. Not only do we receive forgiveness of our sins through sacramental confession, our relationship with our spiritual father provides encouragement and direction for our lives and helps ensure that our spiritual <coughs> endeavor is not some little manipulation of our self-will. You know? I say the Jesus prayer all the time, and I read the Psalms all the time. Okay, but do you have a spiritual father? Well, I'm, no, I just, you know, the, the church teaches that he who has himself as a spiritual guide, has a fool for a spiritual father. Get it? So, we need to have a relationship with someone who is providing spiritual guidance, and we, and we need to take that guidance seriously. And we have to, you know, we have to take the challenge of it. Accountability is really, is really hard because it means being seen by another person. And in order for us to, to realize our identities as true persons, we have to be willing to be seen. In addition to this, we must make every effort to attend the divine services of the church. Attendance on Saturday Vespers. I like that he says this. Attendance on Saturday Vespers and Sunday. Matins is the Russian term. We use the word orthros. But and Sunday Orthros and liturgy is the bare minimum. Well, all three. Okay, we got a lot of slackers around here. I've been thinking about it, though. It's really, like, it's abysmal how few people come to Vespers on Saturday night these days. When I came to St. Paul, like, at first, like, 50, 60 people would be at Vespers. Whoa, like, they, it was the place to be. And I don't know, especially post-COVID, like 10 people sometimes, I mean, sometimes more, but I'm trying to come up. I don't want to market it, though. I don't want to be like, Vespers is really cool. Come, you know, with your families or something, you know. But I, but I have been thinking, like, how about, I don't know, for people who come zero times a month, maybe like the first Saturday of every month, it's like everyone comes to Vespers night, you know. But... I also just, I want, I just want people to want it. I mean, I'm going to be here whether you're here or not. I just, because I'm like a desperate wretch in need of a cool glass of water. So, I mean, so that's, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you're better than I am.
but it changes your life. It really heals you. It's better than watching a television show. It's, you know, you can skip the party or go to the party before or after, but getting to church more often, it really changes your life. But it, it represents a significant paradigm shift in one's values too. I value it enough to go out of my way and make sacrifices to do it. And what do we go out of our way to do, make sacrifices to do? It's interesting for us to think about that. What do I go out of my way to do? Because it, I value it because I care about it. Or because you say, I have to do it. But it means you value it enough to do it. So what about the church? What about the feasts? I mean, the 12 feasts of the church should be days that people are just, they can't wait for the next one. But, well, I have to go to, we have to go to church again, another midweek service or something, you know, and we need, we really need a change. Not just, it's not just a mind change of the mindset. Like, Father says I need to go to church services, you know, but it's a change of the heart, a softening of the heart. And, uh, and I don't, I'm, I'm not a nose counter. I just learned this term. Someone said, I'm a nose counter. I'm like, I don't, I don't really keep track. I mean, I know that, I know if there's like about 20 people or if there's, I don't know, <coughs> a, or more than that, you know, but that's about it. But I'm not, I, I don't keep roll or anything. But I am telling you, I mean, it's just, <clears throat> if you can. And I understand there are some legitimate, as pastorally, there are some people that, because of their, their um, as a matter of survival or what's going on in their life, it's, um, it's not possible to get it to, to all of the special services and things, but then just do some. Do something rather than nothing. I mean, okay, you come every Sunday, that's a good start. Now build on that a little bit. If you come to zero Vespers every month, come to one, one every month. And then you go to one, you know, start, bump it up to one a week. Anyway, but that means you have to put up with me. I can barely put up with me. <laughs> you get more grace by bearing the cross of being, having me in your life. Many Orthodox Christians use their vacation time. I mean, historically, um, Orthodox Christians would use their vacation time in order to attend services of Holy Week. And I always encourage people at least, at least to take Holy Thursday, Holy Friday, Holy Saturday, and Pascha. Easter in the West, but Pascha off the resurrection. Those four days are essential do not work on those days unless your life depends on it. And then you can, and you can tell me, and I'll, and I'll reason. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, hang it over your head or something, but uh, it is a matter of priorities. And those days are really important days in, in the church year. And especially if not at all, I mean, if you can, if there are only two days that you have, it would be Great and Holy Friday and Holy Pascha, of course. Um, so this is truly a pious act, a godly thing to do. How shall we stand before Christ who gave his life for us if we can't make room in our busy schedules to worship him and receive the gifts of grace that he offers us? 
So another, another useful strategy is to make frequent pilgrimages to monasteries. I think every, everyone should, should have a relationship with a monastery. Um, and for us, the one that we usually go to, my family, and I encourage people to go visit most often, is the Monastery of St. John in Goldendale. Just don't move there. No, you can. You know what? You can. You can. If God calls you there. Just don't, don't do it because you think life's going to get easier. Father John, who's the priest out at, the, we have a parish near the monastery now, because so many people were living, moving out to be close to the monastery. Um, but a monastery is not a parish, not a community. It's a very different atmosphere. A wonderful place. But, so we started a, a parish. And uh, Father John said, just don't think that your life's going to get easier if you move out here. Your spiritual warfare, your struggle will increase. And uh, I've talked to some people who moved out, moved out there and they were like, he was right. So we have certain struggles. They have struggles. Everywhere you go, you're not going to be freed from them on this side of eternity. Furthermore, we can take advantage. Okay, so, oh yeah. So at monasteries, yeah, we can experience a fuller liturgical cycle than that available in our local parishes. And we can just, honestly, we can be inspired by people who live that, that life of um, unconditional commitment to, to serving Christ and, you know, loving God and neighbor in that way. Furthermore, we can take advantage of the peace and solitude that they afford the pilgrim, participating, if only for a time, in the monastic's rhythm of life. And usually we go, like when I take my family, we're going to go in the week after next. We're trying to go every, every two, three months. I encourage everyone to try to go at least, at least once or twice a year to, um, to visit a monastery. And there is one on Vashon Island. That's a kind of a good one for a day visit for most people. Go there, you know. Um, it's very small. And uh, the monks are, are friendly, lovely. But it has a little, a little different atmosphere. It's not kind of the atmosphere that you kind of immerse in. It's, when you go to Goldendale, I think there are like 30 nuns. And um, they run a bakery and a gift shop and bookstore there. And yeah, we were talking about... Yeah, yeah. You should at least swing in and just you know visit them. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's more like it's kind of more like a little like a mini Orthodox town there. You know what I mean? Rather than uh, some like I kind of was telling someone they have I don't know, like four monks at the monastery. So it's kind of like four Orthodox kind of roommates, you know, <laughs> living together doing them their, their monastic thing on Vashon Island. Um, but th- they're very lovely and hospitable and they love, you know, Father, um, Father Trifon is going to want to do a selfie with you if you um, go out there. But, uh, and if you go, if you do visit a monastery, um, you have to ask the blessing before you go. You seek, you talk to me before you go. Um, <clears throat> so that I can talk to you about about it, and they pre- they pre- they presume that anyone who's going to visit has a has a blessing, unless you're just passing through. Like if you're going, to, you know, to visit family or something, you stop off in their bakery. You're not going to be staying there at the monastery. So that's fine. Um, Saint John Monastery has a their bakery, which is right on the freeway, 
And uh, it's kind of, I wonder what people think. You know, it's, it's like the only thing out there on this stretch of highway in the middle of nowhere between Toppenish and Goldendale. And uh, it's like Greek Orthodox bakery or Greek bakery or something. And you walk in and there's these, these nuns in there. I wonder what people think who've, who've never been there before or never encountered a nun before. But they have good coffee. My kids love the sweets that they have there. So, okay. Continuing. Oh no, are we going to finish, you guys? While pilgrimages and retreats are beneficial for the soul, there are also ways which can make our daily lives more peaceful. One of the best strategies is to limit the amount of television we watch, and I would add now internet. Um... One of the big changes that I would highly recommend is um, is uh, rearranging your relationship with your phone. Uh, I have mine set up now. Uh, I deleted. You just acquire apps over time, and that's my. I don't know if you can see my my home screen. It's just there's an icon and there are four apps at the bottom: phone, email, calendar, and text. That's it. And then I do have, um, like, the voice. I use this to record. It's handy. And uh, a little notepad. But get, uh, honestly, get rid of social media apps. Delete them. If you value it enough, then you will sit down at your computer and take the time to do it. But if, someone, if something requires that it's in your pocket all the time, you know, it's like some of them, they require you to have an app. It's like... They want to be on your person all the time. Disable notifications for things that you don't need to be notified all the time. Forgive me. Get rid of social media apps. And just don't get sucked into it. And then I recently discovered this last week. I've been thinking about just going back to, like, to a simple flip phone. But the, I realize a phone is, is, is a tool if you use it that way rather than being used by it. And so... Rather than going and buying, they call it a dumb phone now, a minimalist phone, um, I thought I could just use my phone minimally. And one of the techniques is to change the color scheme to monochrome, grayscale, and it makes it just less interesting. You just want to use it for what you have to use it for. So, And I'm doing this mostly as a pastoral experiment just to help people because so many people really struggle with uh, personal device and phone use is a huge addiction. It's a time suck. I mean, it's just, it just it draws you in and you lose track of time on your phone so easily. So if you get rid of apps, things you, that you don't really need, then you'll be intentional with your time. If it's worth doing, sit at your computer and do it. Hopefully in a public place where other people can see what you're doing so that you're not, you know, getting on the internet in isolation and doing mischievous things. Um, but rearranging your relationship with your phone and with the internet, I mean, but the internet is mostly, it mostly has to do with the portal that we use called the smartphone these days. So I think we need to work on that. Yeah, many families have eliminated, te eliminated television because they don't need it anymore. They can, do, they can watch everything on their phone. Get rid of Netflix if it's on your phone. And all of those apps. Just do it, for a, do it for a month. I was going to say a week, but no. Do it for a month. A week's not long enough. You can kind of grin and bear it. And you will realize that 
the world is alive. There are things that you can do. There's a life worth living. You can overcome your, did I tell you about this? Your FOMO. Your fear of missing out. You're missing out on what's right in front of you. So I'm, and I, I'm saying that like really sincerely. Really think about your relationship with your phone and your personal devices. Our eyes and ears are the door, doorway to our soul. <clears throat> you are what you eat. You could say, you know, anything that we put into our mouth, we internalize it. It becomes a part of who we are. Same with what we choose to look at and listen to. There's no way we can keep our minds and bodies pure while we constantly gaze upon and listen to suggestive programming and music. And we don't, don't allow yourself to become systematically desensitized to sin. Don't do it. It's naughty. You don't need that stuff in your life. Like, resensitize yourself to it. Turn off the movie when it gets risque. Don't listen to, to sick songs that are, I mean, they're just, I was, I was uh, exposed to some, some popular song recently. I don't listen to the radio in the car. Well, every once in a while I'll turn on news radio for, while I commute from home to the church, four minutes. And uh, I'll just kind of see what kinds of things they're talking about for a few minutes. But anyway, I heard a song, and it's just, they're so crude these days. I can't believe it. And it's, it was, I like the beat, you know, people will say. It's like, you are being, you're being poisoned, really, because that stuff is entering in. So we need to be careful. And I'm not, I'm not saying be a total prude or weirdo. Please, don't, don't get me wrong. I can see the, the creativity. I can see the desire for it. But I also see um, that it's a lot of times it's just feeding the passions. And we're trying to come up with excuses for that. The problem is not so much the pornography sold in adult bookstores nowadays as the seemingly innocuous popular entertainments which fill our leisure time. And now, you know, the popularization of, of I don't know, at least of sex scenes and things like that. I mean, it's everywhere. <laughs> it's kind of funny. You can tell it's a little dated because he says, from soap operas. Do people watch soap operas? Sit situation comedies, talk shows, our children, just from shows and popular culture, they're taught that premarital sex and extramarital sex is acceptable. Like, do we want them to think that that's normal? Um, they, can, they can know that it's happening, but they, they, they can also know that we disagree with that. And we've really worked hard with our children to teach them. Like, there are certain things that people do, and we'd, we're not going to, you know, like, to totally judge them. They have the right to, to make those decisions, but we don't believe in that, or we don't agree with that. And that's okay. They learn to imitate the irreverent and beastly behavior of their heroes. I have a note here. What did I say? Yes, gradual desensitization. Okay, guys, I'm going to try to wrap it up. How much longer do we have? I don't think I'm going to have... I'm going to have to stop. Okay. From educational television, they learn that Christianity is a man-made religion like all the others and that human intelligence will one day solve all of man's problems. 
and guarding the window to our soul is not only um, necessary for our salvation, it's especially necessary for the salvation of our families. We are in Proverbs, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Unfortunately, our society, and that means we have to be, we have to be countercultural then. And it's okay to be counter. I gave a homily on that a while ago. Is it okay to be different? Yes. Not for the sake of being different, but for the sake of clinging to, to the truth. It's like cool to be countercultural, isn't it? Like we're the super countercultural orthodox. More punk than any punk rocker out there. Unfortunately, in our society, parents must be as wary of what goes on in schools as they are of what their children see on television. Many parents are opting to teach their children at home so they can be sure that their children receive a quality education and training in righteousness. And really, I mean, whether homeschooling is an option or not, all parents, they have to take an active role in their children's life. We can't... Um, we can't uh, um, Oh, what's the word? Not relinquish. Outsource. Thank you. We can't just totally outsource our kids' education and then be the. Oh, I, I'm not the one who raised them. I'm not the one who said that as their teacher. What? So we have to be. We have to be hands hands on in that. We have to be. We have to be aware and willing to you know deal with the consequences of what we're hearing, what they're being taught. And figure out what that means if, if they are in an environment where um, they're being taught things that are incompatible with our faith. Then can we, can we have them be there with integrity or do, does there need to be some kind of change? I don't know. Maybe when we start our Orthodox church on Whidbey Island, we'll start a school out there too. Let's just take over the whole island. In this way, parents can regain at least some control over their children's intellectual formation. We must. And I'll end just with this last paragraph. It's not to suggest that we must withdraw completely from popular culture. I'm not talking about being, you know, ortho-Amish. Indeed, exposure to the arts is essential to a well-rounded education, but the key is discernment. And discernment means being able to say yes sometimes and also being able to pull, unplug pull the cord out sometimes, you know, and say, no, not this one. There's plenty of good edifying literature and popular entertainment available, but we must learn to separate the wheat from the chaff. And someone say, chew the meat and spit out the bones. But we have to be careful and discerning. We're trying to develop discernment. So we'll end there, and then I will, we'll just finish off this chapter next time. Um, and then... Uh, and then maybe, maybe we'll finish the chapter and I'll, I'll touch on some other kind of practical topics and things. I'm going to be sending out an email on uh, kind of church, church etiquette and decorum kind of stuff that I haven't done that for a long, long time. So I found an article that I kind of reworked and edited and maybe that'll give us some things to talk about too next week. So... Okay, well, I went over time today. I'm so sorry. We'll just end with a quick prayer through the prayers of our Holy Fathers. May the Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. God bless you all. Go in peace. God willing, I'll see you again soon.